You're listening to the English Ministry Podcast of Chinese Christian Church Thousand Oaks. Join us every Sunday at 11 a.m. Find out more at english.cccto.org. Well, it is my pleasure uh, to introduce to you Pastor Jim Kong. Uh, he's one of our pastoral candidates. Uh, he will be here during uh, the lunchtime at the Fellowship Hall. So uh, please get to know him, say hi to him, ask him any question that you want. He welcomes questions. Yesterday we had a great time together at Mitch Shoe's house, Mitch and Janice Shoe's house, getting to know him and ask him some uh, questions as well. So hope you avail yourselves of that. Uh, by way of introduction, um, Reverend Jim Kong has been in the pastoral ministry for 22 years. And within those years, he served as associate pastor, senior pastor, and church planner. Sometimes you'll find him blogging at pastor's perspective or at reforming churches when time permits. He enjoys eating and taking naps, or vice versa. He is married to Yuna and recently celebrated their 20th anniversary in Maui, Hawaii. He loves to preach, teach, and enjoys visiting with people over a cup of Americano. Let's give him a warm welcome, Pastor Jim Kong. Good morning, everyone. Good to be here. Appreciate all the um, people that I have um, encountered over the last uh, several hours. It's, it's been real fun visiting with uh, many of you and hope to um, talk to many of you afterwards. The, t- the title of this message, as you can find in your bulletin, is How Not to Glorify God as a Local Church. I was raised with reciting Westminster Shorter Catechism as a child. Although I was not converted at the time, it was my first introduction to Christian theology in some systematic fashion. And as a follower of Christ now, I really appreciate the catechism even more. The first question in the catechism, if some of you are familiar with that, ask this question. It says, what is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of man? In other words, what is man's goal in life? In which the responding answer goes something like this. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. To me, that is the best theological summation as to why you and I are created and what we are called to do in this life, namely, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. But I want you to know that such doctrinal statement did not come from just anywhere. It comes from the Bible. With that in mind, I would like for us, if you have your Bible with you, turn to one passage where such theological summary is found, and that's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So if you have your Bible, turn your Bible with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Draw your attention to verse 31, which says, Whether then you eat or drink... 
or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Did you get that? Let me read that again. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That statement is the best biblical summary as to why we exist and what we are called to do in this life. In fact, that is my life verse as a Christian, as a husband, and as a minister of the gospel, that I exist not for my own glory, but for God's glory, and I do everything for his glory. Every decision I make, what drives me is this particular verse. The latter part of verse 31 says, Do all to the glory of God. In the original language, this particular verb is in what we call imperative form. That is to say, do all to the glory of God is not a suggestion. This is not an option for Christians. You glorify God whenever you feel like it. That's not what it means. The verb clearly is an explicit form. That is, this is an explicit command of God to his people. If you want to know what God's will is for your life, here it is. Here it is. It's not too complicated. Here it is. Do all to the glory of God. That is the purpose statement for every professing believer. If you profess yourself to be a follower of Christ, this ought to be what's driving you all the time. Am I glorifying God? Am I glorifying God with my studies? Am I glorifying God with my jobs? Am I glorifying God with my money? Am I glorifying God with this and that? I now want to shift gear from glorifying God individually as a Christian to corporately as a church. If we agree that Christians are to glorify God individually, isn't it also true then that Christians are to glorify God corporately as a church? That only makes sense, right? If, if we as a Christian individually exist to glorify God, what is our mission statement? What is our mission statement as a local church? That ought not to be different as a church. If somebody would ask you, why do you exist as a church? What ought to come out of your mouth is because this. We exist as a church to glorify God, nothing else. We don't exist to glorify man. We don't exist to glorify any type of ministries a pastor, anybody, simply to glorify God. However, I'm sorry to tell you that not all so-called churches glorify God. Case in point, you could read Galatians, for example. Paul had an issue with Galatian church for not understanding the gospel. In fact, in his letter to the church in Sardis, even Jesus said, confronting the church in Sardis in Revelation 3.1, he says, I know your deeds. I know what you do, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. There are churches that have a name. 
but in reality they're dead. Who makes such a judgment call? You? Me? No. Jesus. What's, so there are churches that have a name, that have a reputation, but in sight of Christ, it's not honoring to God. What's sad is that some of them don't even know their spiritual conditions. They go, they function as business as usual. Hence, this morning, I want to point out six ways a church will not glorify God. Although I could have you turn here and there throughout the Bible, I simply want to park at one specific book in the Bible, namely here in 1 Corinthians. This is because the church of Corinth teaches us, if anything, the church of Corinth teaches us how or what not to be as a church. Corinthian church has all sorts of issues. If you were to read through and study 1 Corinthians, it's like reading contemporary church. Church with all sorts of messed up issues. You're not the only one that has problems. Corinthians had all sorts of problems. To a point where it was embarrassing to even to be a member of this church or be connected to this church. I want to have you turn your Bible with me to chapter 10. If you're there in 1 Corinthians, draw your attention to verse 11. Paul says, Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Paul here is referencing the disobedient Israel in the Old Testament as an example. You can see that in the context there. And Paul is simply saying, hey, look, we can learn from the Israel, the disobedient Israel, and they were written for our instructions, for our example. If that is true, then we can certainly apply the same principles, same hermeneutics that Paul is applying here to us. We can certainly learn from Corinthian church. And so when you study 1 Corinthians, I'm certain that you can find more then six ways a church would not glorify God, but I have a only limited time for me to address this morning. So this morning, I just want to simply address six of them to you. If you're taking notes, I trust that you can follow along. Let me begin with the first example of how a church would not glorify God. We can begin with chapter 1 there in the letter. Draw our attention to verse 10. Paul says, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind, and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that they are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I am of Paulus, and I am of Cephas, and I of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Go to chapter 3, please. Chapter 3. 
draw your attention to verse 1. Paul writes, And I, brethren, cannot speak to you as to spiritual men. That's a heartbreaking to say as a pastor to the church. I can't speak to you as spiritual people. Why? Because you don't get it. You don't get it. I could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. So that gives you sort of assessment, a type of maturity level of this church. I gave you milk to drink and not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able. They were just immature church. The congregation was filled with immature people. And Paul says, for you are still fleshly. For since there is, because, here, here's the reason, because there is jealousy and strife among you. Are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? For one says, I'm a Paul, another, I'm a Paulus. Are you not mere men? What then is Apollos? Who's Apollos? What is Paul? There are servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted Apollos water, but God was causing the growth. It's not Paul that was causing the church to grow. It's not Apollos, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who is plant, one who plants, nor the one who waters is anything. But God who causes the growth. Now, if he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. One more. Drop down to verse 16. And hear what Paul is saying. Do you not know? That you, and he is addressing plural here, not singular, referring to the collectively as a church. Do you not know that you are a temple of God? This is Paul's description of what a church is. is a temple of God. And that the Spirit of God dwells in you. If any man destroys a temple of God, God will destroy him for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. So here's a first example how a church would not glorify God. God is not glorified when a church is divided. God is not glorified when a church is divided. This is what Paul goes after at the onset of this letter as he is addressing the congregation. This church was clearly divided over what we call the cult of personalities. The personalities of who? The apostles. They were church leaders. Some were saying, hey, I'm for Paul. Some people were saying, no, I'm for Peter. Some people were saying, well, and, and there were some spiritually proud ones that said, oh, you know, I'm for Christ. It's very possible that churches can be divided today over what we call celebrity preachers and by their groupies. Just like the Corinthians, some people today say, hey, you know, I'm for so-and-so. No, I'm for so-and-so. No, I'm for this preacher or that pastor. 
May I say to you, a church is not a fan club for celebrity preachers. This is clearly over personalities. I like Paul. No, I don't like Paul. Paul is too scholarly when he preaches. He's too academic. Peter, I don't like him because he talks too much. He always put his foot in his mouth. I don't like him. Is it possible that, that people, especially in the church, is divided over personalities? Can I tell you something about personalities? I'm so glad for diversity. I'm glad that not every preacher is alike, not every pastor is alike. Everyone has strength and weakness, and that's the beauty of it. It's amazing that people divide over personalities. While churches may, be, may not be divided over celebrity preachers, it is possible that church is divided over something else. I'll give you some of the hottest topics. How about worship style? Homeschooling. You bet. Churches are divided over homeschooling. Politics. That's a hot button around this time. And so on. Sometimes, or sometimes, the church is divided by people who are simply divisive. They're hungry for power. They're hungry for recognition. They're the loud ones in the church. They want people to listen to them. And undiscerning people simply follow them. Sometimes churches may be divided over families. Some churches are made up with many blood-related families. I was preaching at a, at a Filipino church, and more than 50% were blood-related people. This can have strength, and it can also be very, very detrimental. Some people are more loyal to families than biblical truth and convictions. Sometimes, churches can be divided over none of those things that I just mentioned. They may be divided without even recognizing it. For instance, churches may be divided over generationally. You know, I was mentioning this yesterday during Q&A, that many churches today have become so compartmentalized that so many groups within the church function independently. Hence, you hardly get the sense that church is a covenant community that worships together with people of all ages. Rather, many churches today have become really hindrance in helping people, helping families to be specific, to worship together on the Lord's Day. Another example when churches may be divisive in the community, not internally, but externally, perhaps in the community, is when churches are very, very ethnically exclusive. So God is not glorified when a church is divided. Here's a second point. need to move on due to time. Draw our attention to verse 26 there in chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 26. Paul says, listen to what he says, For consider your calling. Pay attention 
to your calling. See to it that you grasp your calling. Brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and so on. God is not glorified. Here's a second point. God is not glorified when a church is ignorant of the gospel. God is not glorified when a church is ignorant of the gospel. This clearly implies that some of the people in this church believe that they were Christians because they had something to boast of or to take credit for their salvation. For Paul, he clearly points out things that do not contribute to their salvation, such as, Paul says clearly in verse 26, not many wise according to the flesh. You're not a Christian because of your smartness. You're not your Christian because you graduated from some Ivy school or because of your GPA. Worldly wisdom, intellect, Academic achievements have nothing to do with your salvation. Not many wise according to the flesh. And then he says, not many mighty. Not many mighty, that is to say, due to their power or their powerful positions. And finally, not many noble. That is to say, not according to your social economic status. To borrow Paul's language, you are what you are only by what? The grace of God. Don't kid yourself that you are what you are because of you. Notice how many times Paul repeats and puts emphasis on words like calling and chosen. Simply in this paragraph alone. His point is, words like calling or chosen imply that those things are simply beyond us or outside of us. The Christian view of salvation is that it is God who calls. It is God who redeems. It is God who seals his redeemed people. Salvation is not the work of God plus the efforts of man. If you want to know whether people truly understand the gospel, just ask them why they think they're Christian. Just ask them that. Ask your professing Christians. Just ask them, why do you think you're a Christian? Just ask them. Or why do they think that they will go to heaven? One writer says, I do not believe the gospel because I believe in God. Rather, I Believe in God because of the gospel. That is to say, understanding the gospel helps me to understand the God of the gospel. I'm not in any illusion that that anybody who walks into church understands the gospel. 
What is the gospel? It's so simple, yet so profound. Everything we do as a Christian is because of this, because of the gospel. What is the gospel? Let me tell you what gospel is not. Gospel is not, the message of the gospel is not God, God loves you and God has wonderful plans for you. I know that's a popular message. The gospel is not, you claim whatever you want to claim from God and God will give it to you. In fact, you demand from God and he will give you whatever you wish. God's not some cosmic genie that if you somehow rub him in the right place, he will answer your prayers. That's not the gospel. To go even further, to challenge your thinking about the gospel, in fact, the gospel doesn't even begin in the New Testament. Gospel doesn't even begin with the birth of Jesus. In a nutshell, the gospel is God's powerful story of redeeming sinners. The story begins with the reality. The gospel begins where? The book of Genesis. In the beginning, God. That's where the gospel begins, with God. Gospel does not begin with you. Gospel does not begin with me. The gospel begins with God. The story begins with the reality that God created all things. All the things that God created were good, especially our first parents, Adam and Eve, who were created in God's image. They were, clo- they were created to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. However, God gave them one stipulation, namely obedience. This stipulation came with warning. That is, the moment they would disobey God, they would forever be alienated from God and be dead. You know the story. Tragically, our first parents chose to disobey God and chose to disregard God's command. The Bible teaches that as a result, sin and death enter the world and spread to all people. Moreover, because of their transgression, it resulted all to be sinners and brought condemnation to everyone. That's what Romans 5.1, 5.18 teaches. In other words, the whole humanity has been and still stands guilty and condemned before God. In addition to this bad news, the Bible says there's nothing we can do to get right with God by our own effort. So that's bad news. However, God, being rich in mercy, he sent his one and only son, Jesus, to this world to reconcile sinners to himself. So Jesus came to fulfill what was spoken of him in Scripture by being conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin, suffered, crucified, died the substitutionary death for sinners. He was buried. On the third day, he rose again from the dead, according to Scripture. Afterwards, he ascended into heaven, and he now sits at the right hand of God the Father and intercedes for his redeemed people. And from there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. Friends, that is a story of God's redemption. That is the gospel, the good news. The good news is a sinner who has been alienated and condemned can now be reconciled to God by faith and repentance. The Bible says that if you confess 
with their mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Moreover, for with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. So turn to God and believe his gospel. So this church, what we can learn from Corinthian church, is God is not glorified when a church is divided. Secondly, God is not glorified when a church is ignorant of the gospel. Here's a third lesson that we can walk away from studying 1 Corinthians. Number three, God is not glorified when a church disregards holiness and purity. God is not glorified when a church disregards holiness and purity. Draw our attention to chapter 5. This is a one example of, how messed up this church was. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul writes here in verse 1, it is actually reported. It is actually reported. Meaning this is not just a private knowledge anymore. It's a public well-known. It It is actually reported that there is immorality among you. Immorality among you. This is not the issue is not outside of the church. This is what was going on internally. It is reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles. So even in the non-believer standard, this was really bad. Even non-believers are ashamed to talk about it. But this was actually going on in the church, namely what was happening. In the verse 1 says that someone has his father's wife. What kind of church allows this kind of thing to go on? What kind of church would tolerate such behavior? And Paul says in verse 2, you have become arrogant. And you have not mourned instead. I tell you what many churches will, how they will behave in this type of church. They will, they will be the type of church, oh, you know, we're a church that we just love everyone, accept everyone. To use Paul's own words, you have become arrogant. You have not mourned instead. So that the one who had done this deed will be removed from your midst. May I say to you, if a church fails to live holy, then it's not a church. Call it something else. Call it something else. It's not a church. To go a little further, may I say to you, you and I don't define church. God does. God defines church, and he already did in his word. When a church fails to live holy, what does a church say about holiness of God? When you tolerate this type of sinful behavior in the church, what is the church saying about the holiness of God and the holiness for God? What does a church say about sin? What does a church say about the gospel, Christ, his members, Membership and worship. 
Hence, a church that is not interested in pursuing holiness is not a church. When a professing church fails to live holy, she invites God's discipline, if not judgment, upon her. Just read the church history. And God's judgment, my friends, does not have to be loud. God's judgment does not have to be loud and noticeable as with fire and brimstone, but so often in a very subtle form. You know what that kind of form is? A slow death by starvation of his word. Let me read to you what Amos 8.11 says. Amos 8.11 says this, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine for bread or thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. That is a form of God's judgment. When God will remove his ministers from churches where churches will no longer hear the preaching of God's word. I want to make one more observation regarding living holy. For Paul, interestingly enough, he makes the connection between failing to live holy with arrogance. Out of all the epistles that Paul wrote, 1 Corinthians is the only place where he uses the word arrogant the most. You find that in chapter 4, verse 6, 4, 18, 4, 19, and chapter 5, verse 2, which we just read. In other words, a church that fails to live holy is an arrogant or prideful church. You read James lately? James says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to who? The humble. He opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Isn't it any wonder that when a church, such people in this church, came together for the Lord's table, some were actually killed by God? And you can read that in 1 Corinthians 11. Here's a number fourth, fourth lesson from 1 Corinthians. God is not glorified when a church does not stand for what honors God. God is not glorified when a church does not stand for what honors God. Draw our attention to chapter 11, please. Chapter 11, verse 17. Paul says, but in giving instruction, I do not praise you. Another sad, sad reality that was going on. You know, something wrong when a pastor cannot praise about his congregation. I do not praise you. There's, there's, I can't say things that are commending. Because why? You come together for not for the better, but for worse. Verse 18, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe it. Verse 19, For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. 
churches known for or churches known by what she stands for. Churches known by what she stands for. We stand for truth. We stand for the gospel. We stand for God. We stand for scripture. In fact, that's really what really started our Protestant Reformation with Luther, right? Here I stand, referring to God's word. So churches stand is really known by what she stands for. At the same time, a church is known by what she refuses to stand for. You read Psalm lately? How about Psalm 1-1? Blessed is a man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Church is known not only by what she stands for, but what she refuses to stand for. Although there is sinful divisiveness that Paul warns here, even from the beginning as I showed you, not all factions are bad. Not all factions are sinful or evil. That is, there is and there ought to be legitimate divisions, legitimate factions. In fact, this is what Paul commands. He commands toward verse 19. He commands for what? Biblical separation. He says, there must also be factions among you. He's not talking about sinful factions, but factions for truth. So that those who are approved may become evident among you. God is not glorified when a church is divided. God is not glorified when a church is ignorant of the gospel. God is not glorified when a church disregards holiness and purity. Fourthly, God is not glorified when a church does not stand for what honors God. Here's number five. God is not glorified when a church fails to love one another. God is not glorified when a church fails to love one another. Draw our attention to chapter 13. So often it's called a love chapter in the Bible. And if you grew up in a church, you and I, we, we know this passage. We've heard so many, so often reference to this passage. But yet... We fail so often. What we are so familiar with. You know, so often when churches have problems, and being a pastor for 21 years, I, I think I've seen a lot of stuff in churches, and, and I've heard a lot of stuff from friends, and also doing some consulting work, So often when churches have problems, usually it's not about doctrinal issue. Usually it's not about doctrinal, but so often it's about relational issues among people. So often people fail to love one another.
How many more sermons do you have to hear? How many more Bible studies that you have to attend? How many more books that you have to read that we have to love one another? And Paul gives various biblical descriptions of the characteristics of love. Love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't brag. It's not jealous, and so on. And it's not just marking, it's not just a check list of things that we just check off, but we're talking about depth, the quality of these things. And you, it ought to begin with your, your own life, my own life, and collectively as a church. God is not glorified, friends, when the church fails to love one another. As mentioned earlier, one of the problems that this church had was that it was divided. And so often the cause of division or the cause of the church to remain divided is due to failing to love people biblically. And when there is failure to love people biblically, you're going to have people who are critical of others, bitter, angry, unforgiving, prideful, self-righteous, arrogant, and so on. And yet, you come to church and worship. And that's what Paul says. You don't come together for good. You're adding judgment to yourself. You're just going through lip service. As Jesus said of the Pharisees, these people worship me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. Is that the type of church that you want to be? Simply giving God the lip service, yet you have unforgiving spirit in your heart. You're critical of others judgmental. God is not glorified, friends, when a church fails to love one another. That's another whole sermon series, but I need to move on. Last but not least, draw our attention to chapter 14 of this letter. God is not glorified when a church does not have a sense of order. God is not glorified when a church does not have a sense of order. End of chapter 14, Paul says, But all things, all things must be done properly and in orderly manner. This church was known for misusing spiritual gifts. And you could read about that when you read through this letter. Some of the non-believers walked, in, walked into a church, and this church, the congregations, where some were just doing whatever they want to do. Some were perhaps praying in tongue loud, and some of the non-believers thought, that, are, are these people mad? Are these crazy people? What's going on here? And I've been to churches where I was asked to, invited to guest speak, and very, very awkward and uncomfortable, where I walked into a church, and so foreign of things that I have never experienced, people just doing whatever they want to do during worship service. Some people are drawing, some people are painting, some people are dancing, some people are praying out loud. What is going on in a public worship gathering? This church was known for misusing spiritual gifts. The church had what some people considered as charismatic chaos. 
And you can read about that in this letter. The church also had disorderly conduct during communion. You can read about that. Some people were taking advantage of the bread. Some people were taking advantage of drinks. And as a result, some people received illness or death. Maybe for some churches, a sense of disorder does not have to be about charismatic chaos. But simply having chaos, such as having disorderly conduct in worship service or lack of structure, or even having all sorts of perhaps even theologically questionable stuff or that we do. Members who have no accountability. You know, you just come and go as you please. That's disorderly. People usurping authority and so on. So Paul says, all things must be done properly and in orderly manner. God is not God of confusion. God is not God of chaos. That's why, in, Revel- in fact, Genesis, it reminds us, if anything, if we study creation order, God is God of order. Day one, he did this. Day two, he did this. Day three, he did this. He demonstrates to us that he is a God of order. As I mentioned earlier, certainly we can, we can find other examples, but due to time, here are six examples I present to you this morning how a church is, how a church not to glorify God as a local church. To make this positively, I'm sure you can find these points and turn it into positively. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your truth. Thank you for giving us your scripture. Your word is a lamp and a light to our feet and our path. You do not simply give us for us to figure out how a church ought to conduct herself, but you give us a clear truth that's found in your word. And so, Lord, as we are confronted by your truth, I pray that we would have a strong conviction for your truth. And as a result, may we find comfort, encouragement, healing, We thank for your spirit's ministry this morning, how you bring your truth to us in a very clear fashion. Thank you, Father, for the clarity of your word. And we pray, O God, that if we as individually and also corporately as a church, we find ourselves guilty of these things, we pray, O God, for your forgiveness that you would grant us a gift of repentance. It is our desire, and we confess before you, that we truly desire to have a strong desire to glorify you in all that we do. So help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.